Hey, we got a good episode this week. We had Dan Harden on the podcast. Dan is the CEO, founder, and principal designer of his studio, Whipsaw. And Dan has also had quite a prolific career working at companies like Frog and Henry Dreyfus Associates and also interning for George Nelson. Um, so we get into kind of the, the history and Dan's career, but also dip into some current topics and what Dan thinks of the future. It was a great episode, so hope you all enjoy it. And the sponsor this week is actually us, Minor Details. James and I finally got around to building a little web store. So we have embroidered hats, embroidered t-shirts, and a mug that says sweat in the small stuff and really small typeface. So it's a great way if you all want to support the podcast and get a little something in return. We really appreciate it. You can check that out at minordetailspodcast.com backslash shop. And we're still running our affiliate link with Visoon. They create amazing key shot assets for designers like you and I who probably don't have the time to, you know, dig through some, you know, GrabCAD website to find the right thing and put the right materials on. All this stuff is just drag and drop. It makes sure renders look amazing. I've used it in the past and it's great. Um, they've expanded into materials and decorations. I think they just recently released a bunch of plants, which looks really cool. Um, so check them out and use our affiliate link visoon.io backslash minor details it's also in the description um, it really helps us out and we do appreciate everyone who's used our affiliate link already so thank you so much and you all know the deal give us that like give us that subscribe five stars thumbs up on youtube comment on youtube um, hit the bell icon and yeah let's uh let's hear that intro by kyoshi the kid Hey, welcome to Minor Details. I'm Nick. And I'm Dan. And we're two designers in the big city, sweating the small stuff. You always do this. <laughs> yeah, we always, we always wipe our brow. Um, That's what we do when we're designing, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly sweating the small stuff. This is what I, I still do this. Like, amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's all about the details. Um, That's why I wanted to do your podcast. <laughs> because it said minor details, and I would argue that every detail is pretty major. Well, so I think you need to shift here. You know what's funny, Dan, is when James and I were starting the podcast, we were going over names, and James wanted to call it Major Minor Details. And I was like, it's too long, James. We've got to yeah, cut it down. Okay. But maybe we should have just call it Major Details. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're super excited to have Dan Harden on the podcast today. Dan has an a amazing career working for uh, some incredible companies, uh, working in consultancy, started his career interning uh, around for, I believe you interned for HP, um, George Nelson, and then you moved and worked for Henry Dreyfus Associates. Um, and for Frog, you, you became the president and VP of design at Frog. So you worked at Frog for 10 years or, or a decade around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually started your studio in 1999, was it? Um, it was 24 years ago, like, <laughs> Two weeks ago, right? So you've been doing ago. that for uh, you know the the majority of your career. So 
I'm, you're probably one of the most uh, decorated designers we've had on the pod, so I'm excited to get into it. You've so many good stories. I'm excited to hear them. So welcome Dude, to the pod. I'm happy to be here. I heard about your podcast, and <laughs> I like your studio. I love being surrounded by all these little design knickknacks, I'll call it, because you have so many little 3D printed things up here. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. Thanks, Dan. Nice. Um, so yeah, just to start out the podcast, I know you have your own podcast, and you've been interviewed many times, and uh, I definitely want to get into some topics later on, but we'd like to kind of share a bit with our listeners of your background, kind of how you got into design, and then I'm curious you know, to hear about these stories working for George Nelson or at Frog kind of during mm. the Steve Jobs era. So um, yeah, how did you kind of get into design? How did you figure out, like at what age? And You know, I, I guess starting around eight or nine years old, I was drawing everything. I was taking things apart. Uh, I was just fascinated by my world. I was very observant. Yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do, of course. But when you are freely expressing yourself, even as a kid, if you're curious and you are secure, especially in your family, and I had amazing parents that encouraged me all the time about my creative meanderings. Yeah, believe me, some of them got dangerous. Okay. How, how so? <laughs> oh, well, uh, I, I was fascinated by things that move. Okay. So I was making go-karts and oh, mini-bikes and nice. attempted to make a helicopter. Okay. Uh, a real one that's, that I sat on. That's crazy. Yeah. Did but, it fly? Uh, but uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it almost killed me. Um, my... I made one go-kart that went about 65 miles an hour. This was before you wore even bike helmets. So, you know, this was, it was truly dangerous. Wow. Okay. And then I was really interested in pyrotechnics okay. too. So that got a little crazy. But, um, you know, I, when I found out what industrial design was, it was just one of my first epiphanies. It was right. like, oh, wait a minute. Art, science, engineering. It's a combination of all of these. I was just so turned on instantly about this potential. And I went to the University of Cincinnati. Luckily, they have a co-op program. So I was exposed during work, you know, during school, I could work. Yeah. And my first job was actually at Richardson Smith. Okay. I'm going to doubt that many of your listeners know that company. Yeah, I, I <laughs> But at the time, they were the best design firm in this country. Wow, okay. And if you ask some of the more seasoned veterans in the design world, they would, oh yeah, Richardson Smith. Hmm. I mean, they had all the great clients. There was something about that uh, that just lit me up. Uh, I, I could watch the designers there and easily imagine, like, I, I, I can do this. You know, so it was just, um, I'll, I'll never forget that. It was just such an, an eye-opening experience for young Dan yeah. to see that. And, I, and they threw me right in the, the pit. I was drawing, rendering, making models, uh, figuring stuff out. You know, I yeah. just, I'm just kind of a maker and a figure-outer. And, right. uh, you know, I still rely on my imagination. It is my currency. It is, it is my highest state is when I am on my feet, thinking creatively, certainly thinking out of the box, and just being, being myself. Yeah, yeah, being in that flow state. That's a you know beautiful thing for sure. Um, what about when you you also interned for George Nelson? Yeah, which is obviously a pretty famous designer. Worked a lot with uh, furniture, so I'm curious, kind of your experience there as well. This is all during your your time at school. 
I assume. Yeah, I was, uh, I think my fourth year of school is a five-year course okay. in Cincinnati. So I wanted to work for one of the most famous designers in the world. Right. So I, I found George Nelson's <laughs> okay. number in the yellow pages. Okay. And in I, the yellow pages. Wow. Yeah, in the yellow pages. And I picked up the phone and called George Nelson. I said, is Mr. Nelson there? I got to the VP there, Dan Lewis, okay. who looked at my portfolio. And he said, well, where did you work before? I said, Richardson Smith. And he said, mm. okay, kid, call me back tomorrow. Okay. Unbeknownst to me, his roommate in college was the guy I worked for at Richardson Smith. Oh, okay. So he called me back the next day. He said, yep, you're in. Come on nice. board. Oh, that's, that's George. Was, nice. George, however, was not, um, he wasn't very approachable. Interesting. You know, he was, uh, he, he must have been, I, I don't know, maybe late 70s or 80s when I started working with him. But there was something about him. Obviously, his, his history was extraordinary. Right. And you learn about people like him and Charles Eames. He worked with mm -hmm. Charles Eames quite a bit. But I decided to find out what makes him tick. I needed, it's like, I did decide, even though I was pretty young working there, I was like, I have to figure this guy out. Right. I'm here for a certain amount of time. For sure. And this is a really beautiful story. But I noticed that George was leaving the office every day at four o'clock. And I didn't know, like, where's he disappearing to? He, did, he wasn't taking his coat or anything. He was did just he come back? Him. So one day I, I was like, well, I'm going to follow him. Okay. And he was going to the <laughs> restroom. Is, this is how the interns get fired. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so he was going to the restroom where he had cigarettes and a, co a Mr. Coffee hit him behind <laughs> oh the toilet. Gosh. I am not kidding. Because his wife, who was the, the office manager, prevented him from wow. smoking and drinking coffee in the office okay. for his health. He wasn't the healthiest guy. Okay. So he would, he would stay in that bathroom. It overlooked Gramercy Park. Yeah. It's on Central Park South. And it was on the 18th floor. I'll never forget this. So I followed him in the restroom, you know, this little intern. And I was like, hey, Mr. Nelson, you mind if we, we just talk about design one day? Yeah. And he's like, no, kid, come over here. So he would always lift the window all the way open. Okay. And we'd be looking out at New York City and... That was the beginning of my discourse with him, which lasted my whole internship. I would meet him in the bathroom. Wow. Okay. Every other day, when he wasn't working me to the bone, to just talk about design philosophy. Yeah. And at that time, I was, I was very optimistic about design, as I am today, but I wasn't realistic about it. Mm -hmm. Who is when you're that age? Yeah. He alarmed me about the environment, about the responsibility that designers have. Yeah. He kind of shook me, you know, but it really shook me into an awareness about what design was all about. It was different than what I thought or expected after joining him. Right. But it rang true and it still rings true to me. I still hear his voice in my mind every once in a while. Yeah. What were some of the specific things he would mention to you? Just... I mean, I guess this probably... Relates. He was very anti-consumerism. Okay. He was, he was a sustainable designer way before his time. Right. Um, he would use bad words looking out at New York City, <laughs> okay. and he would do a big hand swipe about yeah. like what all this blank was. And he was critical of <laughs> almost everything. He yeah. was critical about clients, too. And he became pretty cynical about clients, about having to listen to clients, and, and it 
adhere yeah. to systems or formula. He was bucking the system even at his old age. It was so great to, when I look back on it, especially at the time, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize how rare he was or how rare that perspective was, yeah. especially that he had. It was, it was interesting enough when I think about it retroactively, it's refreshing today. Yeah. And yeah, just really loved the experience, loved the man. Sadly, two years after I was there, he passed away. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's great insight. I mean, you know, he's a, quite a famous designer, so let's spend You know, these, I think when you're especially a, a young designer or even when you've been doing this for a while, you have to look for these, any source you can get for your inspiration. Mm -hmm. And it happens at the most unusual of times. You might be walking down the street and something hits you, just uh, not literally, but, you know. Right, right. An idea. Frame of mind, an yeah. idea, or you meet someone that you didn't expect and you learn. You and you change your perspective. Design is constantly about changing perspectives. Yeah, thinking about things in new ways. That's why I've been able to stay so darn passionate about this field for as long as I have. Right. It keeps me young. Right. Literally, it keeps me young. That's that's. I great. wake up in the morning. It's all about creativity. By the time I fall asleep at night, I'm still creating. That's amazing. I mean, that's the yeah. dream, right? Um, what about your time at Henry Dreyfus? So after you graduated college, you went. I believe, did you have a stint in Europe? I, I, I did, yeah. Okay. So when I was in uh, college, all of my my classmates would uh, thought that I was like a little mini Mario Bellini. They okay. were like, you know, because I just, <laughs> I just loved European design. Yeah. I was really intrigued by what was going on uh, in Italy, Germany, France, England at the time. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, that little Valentine typewriter, right. I... I have the, the salt sass out I here loved. in the background. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I got a one-way ticket to Europe and tried to get a job in England, and then they threw me out because this was uh, 83, so okay. they threw me out very quickly, put me on a plane back to France. I talked my way out of it, actually. Okay. So I where, where were you trying to go in England? I was trying to get a job. Just anywhere? Yeah, okay. at, a, at a cool consulting firm and yeah. right, you know, at customs they were like oh kid what are you doing here well i'm, I'm gonna work okay well, what do you do kid <laughs> i'm a designer as you, <laughs> my, as you do when you're young yeah you know, i have my portfolio okay. on my back yeah it's like you want to see my portfolio <laughs> it's a customs agent come with us oh yeah they have very high you around they had high uh, oh, man. unemployment rates at then that's at that time anyway it, i had i i did at that time actually i got this pretty cool job down in a town called Esslingen, but there was a design exhibit in Stuttgart that I will never forget. I was able to see an exhibit with like every great German designer. Mm. And I'm scanning everything, taking it all in, looking for little seeds of inspiration. Right. And I kept seeing this company called Esslinger Design. Okay. <laughs> Esslinger Design eventually became Frog right. Design, but yeah, Hartman Esslinger founded that company. Yeah. So, with two other guys, but I, I was like, I got, I already, I had already gotten a job in a small consulting firm, but I got on a bus to go see this company called Esslinger Design. Got off the bus, and Hartman actually picked me up in this very fast little sports car. What was it? It was a Porsche. No, it was, uh, it was a very souped-up BMW. Okay, nice. Yeah, very fast. He's kind of a. And that we instantly had this in common. I like cars too. Awesome. And um, 
yeah, we and I got yeah, obviously I worked there for a long time, so I got to know him very, very well, and so that was one of the things we had in common. Mm. But you know that t- at that time, it, it it wasn't my time for the frog experience. I had a job. I didn't. That wasn't really. No, it was an interview, but it was more like a get to know one another interview. Right. And at that time, he said, "Well, we just met this guy named Steve Jobs, and we're probably going to be do th- doing this work for Apple." And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I know. That's a cool company. And this is, remind me, this is in the 80s? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, this was before all that frog work for, you know, the Snow White right. program, we okay. called it. Pre-Snow White, um, okay. But uh, so anyway, he's like, well, you know, this is going to happen sooner or later, and we're going to want you to join the company. But I didn't have the patience to hang around. So I came back to New York City, got a job at Henry Dreyfus Associates, worked there for a while. It was wonderful. I, uh, that's where I really learned the business of design, yeah. how to write a proposal, how to sell myself, how to sell the work. There's a difference. Selling, you have to sell yourself as a designer, but the work, you need to make that work saleable. Mm. You need to make it communicate on its own. It has to be its own little emissary of values. You need to impart it with the values, but it needs to sell too. So yeah. I learned a lot of the fundamentals of how to, how to be a designer, a whole designer, not just a designer the way that we might define what good design is. You, right. In order to succeed in this profession, you need to be a, you need to be a lot of things. Right. Good at business, good at marketing, yeah. A lot of yeah. a lot of different facets. Anyway, it was a great place to be. Uh, but I always remembered, I was like, oh, but I met that cool company <laughs> down in the Black Forest. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they were the big they were the big all dog. of a sudden the big dog. Yeah. And and everybody wanted a job at Frog. Mm-hmm. So I called him up and Hartwick basically said, Where have you been? We've been waiting for you to get out here. So I moved out right away, and and this is well. Hang on, I I want to I want to pause for a second. Um, before we get to Frog, I just want to hear a little about Henry Dreyfus Associates, just because I think it's interesting. I was reading into it a little bit. Um, Henry Dreyfus passed away before you started there, yeah. And so his consultancy lived on after his death, and I'm curious how that affected the business and how you all, I guess, carried his values on. I don't know. I kind of looked it up, and I don't really see Henry Dreyfus Associates around today. But it seems like there was some activity in the early two thousands. I just want to maybe tie that up and yeah, curious sure. about that. <clears throat> if you know anything, Henry Dreyfus had hired a lot of very good people mm-hmm. that he brought under his wing, and he had a team of associates. Okay. They were directors, I think, right. when he was alive. Yeah, and there were like five or six of them. Okay, when he passed. And he did that by design, by the way. I, I was reading that as well, which yes. is a crazy story. Yeah. yeah. He left it in the hands of some very qualified people that ran the company. So when I joined, I was working for these five very good designers okay. and good business leaders. So the values were, I think, very much carried on by these five individuals. Mm, and they great. each sort of had... They were running different accounts like AT&T, John Deere, mm-hmm. Heister, American Airlines, and many others. So as a designer, I had to, as soon as I got there, I kind of sized up which partners I liked and the accounts that I wanted to work on. Okay. And yeah, I really, really got into it. Which, I mean, uh, which uh, brands did you get to work on? I wanted to work on AT&T because okay. I was really interested in electronics mm. and technology. And at the time, AT&T was kind of the it company. Right. Not only telephones, but they were producing all kinds of computers, telecom, mm. networking systems, 
And I also like Polaroid because I like handheld yeah. products. I've always liked cameras That's and fun. machines and you know things that are multi-sensory especially. Uh, I didn't particularly want to work on tractors. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not into the tractor. That's I did good. some work on planes. We had Falcon Jet as a client. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I did some razors for American Safety Razor and some medical work. But I was... Um, I was a little whippersnapper back then. Yeah. So, <laughs> I still am. So they kind of let me do whatever I wanted, okay. which was That's awesome. really, really nice of That's them. Amazing. And Don Gennaro, is, he's still around, man. He's like 98 years old or something. And I wrote him a note. And he's one of the associates? He was, one okay. of the, he was, the, he was the, the top guy okay. when I worked there. Kind of an intimidating guy. Really tough. But he liked me, and I wrote him out of the blue like two years ago. Hey, Don, you remember me? Yeah. He wrote me instantly the most eloquent letter saying, absolutely, I remember you. You were so great to work with. I'm so happy to see you just stuck with it. That's yeah, amazing. It was really, really. I really love that. Neat. So he was one of my early mentors. Um, oh, yeah, that's a great, great uh, insight into the Henry Dreyfus Association. And I will say, definitely look up the history because I think it is interesting how Henry passed and, you know, sad at the same time. Um, so you moved to California, your frog era. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in this because, you know, this is where we get into some of the Steve Jobs stories and hearing <laughs> yeah. all about that. So, and you've worked for, you worked for frog for, you know, correct me, about a decade, if not more. Ten years. Um, so it, that's Actually, in a couple months less, so nine years Ten months or something, yeah. And during during their heyday, I would say too, they they were doing some amazing products then. Um, yeah, from eighty nine to ninety nine is when I was yeah. there. So yeah, what was the experience, what was that like? Experience yeah. like, um, especially moving up because you became the president um, slash VP of design, or was that separate things that you? When I well, uh, they were both. It, okay. was, it was a progression. Okay, you don't become the president and the vice president. That's right, a problem. Right. <laughs> that That's means the, you're messing you're something up. Then, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I had always, especially after meeting them, you know, like, yeah. like several years before, I just had such a reverence for what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I just really loved this idea of form follows emotion. What does that mean? Yeah. I was feeling that. I designed like that very much. It was, you know, it was, there was a respect for what people feel, not just how they work and breaking down functional human factors problems, which is obviously very important. But it's more than just design thinking. It's design feeling and mm-hmm. seeing as well. And Frog really got that. And it resonated with me so much that I was like, okay, I can only work here. So, uh, yeah, my first day, I remember Hartman saying, okay, well, you're going to be working with the next computer account with Steve Jobs. Right. You're going to be meeting him every Friday at 3 o'clock. You're going to be meeting with Luigi Zappacosta, the founder of Logitech. And you're going to be meeting with the founder of Sun Microsystems, Andy Bechtelsheim. I got to catch my breath. That was, like, <laughs> yeah, that was, you know. <laughs> well, believe me, I was, uh, I was the same way. I was like, uh, okay. Um, you know, Hartman and I have, we still have a great relationship. And I, I, I was like, yeah, just bring it on. Let, let, let me do this. Yeah. You know, I, I was, I was ready. Quite frankly, I was ready, and and I wasn't. I've never been afraid about design or expressing myself creatively i yeah. feel comfortable there there's some things in technology that we deal with now where it's like so esoteric and so deeply learned that it takes time to understand right what you're designing mm-hmm. for especially certain 
specific vertical markets. But the design thing I'm comfortable with. So yeah, throw me in front of Steve Jobs. <laughs> he what? wasn't the nicest guy in the world, let's be honest. He, he wasn't. I saw him berate marketing people and engineers especially. Yeah. Design had a certain reverence to him. He was a lot friendlier to designers. I didn't yeah. realize at the time. I just thought, oh, he's going to treat me like everybody else. I was always a little bit nervous about it. Hmm. You, you, if you didn't have butterflies going in before you met him, then you didn't do your homework. Oh boy! <laughs> so he was just—he was just very, very sharp. He—he w- he would see the inadequacies of your concept right away. Yeah. And were you working on the next cube? Was that the one, or was there some other variations in there? It that- was everything after that. Okay. So there was a whole line of peripherals, keyboards, mice, right. uh, the new risk workstation we called it, uh, the monitors systems, and the advent of flat screen monitors and mm. things like this. Okay. So, but you know, he was very much involved in every detail. He would come into every design meeting. He was there, you know, every Friday afternoon. He was usually a little bit late. Okay. So. I'd work with a couple of the engineering directors and they'd be, okay, are you ready? You have your models? You know, you say, yeah, you have to be, it'd be prepped. Yeah. Ready to go. Right. For sure. But he did love design and he would get excited when you'd show him something that was different. It was even a little bit outrageous, uh, challenging. He liked, he liked design that was, was unique and, and thoughtful at the same time. Sometimes they're different. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, there's also, I was reading too, you have this story about how, was it Steve or Larry that dropped your model and it shattered into a <laughs> Where did you pieces? read that? You, I think you had another blog on your blog post or something, but I kind of want to hear that story. Oh, okay. Sounds, so, sounds yeah, like so I had done, it's so funny. Everybody likes to hear these stories about yeah. Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison, some of these real characters yeah. in technology. You have to remind After, us too, what is, what is Larry Ellison? What was he famous for? Yeah, he founded Oracle. Okay, Oracle. Yeah, uh, one of the biggest software companies in the world, and he's one of the richest guys in the world, too. He's yeah. like number two or three in the United States, okay. something like this. Yeah, so yeah. he's quite a character. So I'd finished all this stuff for Next because Next then sold ultimately to Apple. Right. But Next shifted from hardware more into software. Okay. So our work with Next kind of slowed down. By the mid-'90s, we got Oracle as a client. And Larry had already hired a bunch of design firms and chewed them up and spit them out. Mm, okay. So his, Didn't make the cut. <laughs> no. And it, so his lieutenant called me up and said, this is likely going to happen. We have never worked with Frog before, but expect this. Okay. <laughs> this, this was too much. I couldn't believe it. So I'm like, okay, fine. What's the design problem? Mm-hmm. He described... A line, he, he wanted to create products that were not like standalone computers. He wanted to use the World Wide Web to act as a computer, okay. a terminal, yeah. a station. We take it all for granted right now. Right. Of course. Brilliant idea. He wasn't the only one that had that idea. Yeah. So I started working with Larry personally, as just the two of us, to design a futuristic line of computers called a network computer. And it got to a point where we had developed about five products conceptually. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, for the next reveal, we're going to have a special reveal. I want you to come to dinner. Just come to dinner. Bring all the models. Okay. So I'm like, oh, okay, another trip over to Larry. We only met at Larry's house. So pulled up into his, got through security, 
at his big, house. At his house, big okay. beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, long, big long right. garage, okay. McLaren F1. Okay, you know, nice. we're talking like okay. really beautiful. As soon as I pulled in, I see a, a big silver Mercedes Benz with a license plate Pixar. Mm. There's only one guy that could be driving that car. Right. I thought, oh man, Steve is here. I already knew that he was a tough customer and super critical. Mm-hmm. Steve is hypercritical. Yeah. And if it's somebody else's work, not something that he's sponsored, he's going to be extra critical. So I knew right away I was on the, I was on the block yeah. for criticism. So anyway, I'm a little bit late to the party oh no because uh, my models were still drying oh of course oh no and my <laughs> model maker said this particular one is very fragile okay if you lift this display up it was kind of like a phone it was a communication device okay don't drop the display back don't don't let go of the model so after dinner and it's just there were four of us at this dinner table is larry's assistant Steve and I. Okay. Okay. Now, what am I doing at that table? I'm a designer. You know, these guys are these brilliant technologists, right? I was super humbled. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to say here? But it's kind of like if you're in a meeting when other people are talking a different language and everyone's all you hear, like, Nick. Yeah. Dan. Yeah. (laughs) One of these. I'm being a little facetious, but we were talking about the future of computers Mm -hmm. and we were having fun of it. And then suddenly Larry says, okay, get out our models. We got to show Steve. So I bring them out one by one. Of course, Steve starts criticizing them. Larry brings one of this one out that was still smelled like lacquer. No. He opened it up. It literally exploded. He oh. dropped the display back, and it came apart in about 20 pieces. Oh and they were, they were falling off the edge of his dining room table. Steve is right here. Steve's three feet in front yeah. of me. As Larry was talking about these models, he was... He was talking about the future of computers and using these models as a prop. Mm -hmm. But what I found so odd is he never stopped his cadence of speaking for one second to say, whoops, sorry, that $30,000 model I just broke, whoops. No, he just kept talking. I'm thinking, am I in a dream? What is going on? You know, like reaching over, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, like this, picking up parts, putting them in the box, never saying anything. Okay, maybe this just didn't happen. Steve didn't say anything either. That is a wild, wild story. And uh, the the wild part was when Larry said to Steve, you know, I think you should consider going back to Apple because they need your help. Mm -hmm. And Steve just gave it a pause. He actually... I could see his mind, like, going... It wasn't the first time somebody said that to him, obviously. But he was thinking on but it. But he was thinking. Yeah. But, and then he said, I have to finish this movie that I'm working on at Pixar. Toy Story. Toy Story yeah. came out two months after, yeah. after this meeting. So, and when, I think he mentioned it's something about toys. I'm like, what is Steve Jobs <laughs> doing working on a movie That's about so toys? You know, like, and he told that to us. I'm like, what? It didn't fit. And then, of course, you see Toy Story, and you're like, oh, my God. You know. Yeah. Innovation beyond belief. Incredible. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, that was, that's just a, one of those career stories, you know, and I, I was pinching myself when I left his house that night. I realized yeah. that, that it was just something I'll never forget. Thank you for asking. Um, I don't like to... Um, I, I don't tell that story very often. It's kind of like a personal 
yeah. thing that, um, you know, I... I mean, it feels like, you know, you, you hear a lot of stories about Steve Jobs and they are very impactful and you can really tell that, you know, the man was, you know, a credible influence on this world and our future. So, um, you know, as, as, as flaws, as many flaws as he had, you know, he certainly created an incredible future for us. Oh, no doubt. I mean, for designers, he's, he's had a huge impact. Yeah. He's as impactful as any great architect or industrial designer, mm-hmm. for sure, if not more so. Yeah. Um, what other uh, what other kind of products did you get to work on at Frog? Were there any other standouts that you really uh, were passionate about during your time there? And I guess also, how did you feel about once you achieved, you know, VP and president status? Kind of what were you? Uh, I guess did this was kind of your first time moving up the ranks of design and becoming more of a, a visionary and less of a, in the, the workshop yeah. carving foam, or maybe you continue to do that. I'm kind of curious to hear that transition. Yeah. Oh, uh, the transition felt very organic and mm-hmm. very natural. The frog was pretty casual um, as whipsaw is. I mean, it's, you know, we, we try not to have too many levels. When I joined, it was a little bit unorganized. That that company, Frog, was was pretty unorganized. Mm. I came in. It it needed leadership. It needed some attention. There were yeah. a lot of aspects of the company that were broken. I just wanted to focus on projects. Quite honestly, I wanted to like dive in and just design my butt off. Right, as most designers do. You yeah. Know? yeah, and and you know, I'm still that way. Right. Now I'm I'm so. It's just like I only want to work on their really cool stuff. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't like just wasting the fun parts and then yeah, let the, I don't like wasting the, my the time designers with, do the, with, the, with the uh, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just designed, 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 and I started to stand out in that company mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And Hartman saw that I was, I was sincere in what I was trying to do. And, so I think I just naturally advanced. One thing I just love about working, loved about working there and respect so much in him is he, he saw talent and he rewarded talent. Mm. And, you know, I was like 30 years old and he's like, we're going to make, he says in a meeting in front of a client, oh, Dan doesn't know, but I'm going to make him the vice president. I'm like, huh? <laughs> Your first time you're hearing it about it. That's yeah, it, yeah, it was just kind of like a, that was the first time hearing it, but but he had a just a. There's something very charming about the man. Yeah, some designers, you know, struggle with his his communication style, or he could get angry sometimes. Okay. Uh, but he just wanted great work to happen. That's yeah. all. I get it. I totally get it. You know, and but his style was unusual. You had to figure it out. And okay. Some designers just couldn't take it. Okay, I happened to end up. You know, he and I are very different, but we shared the same goal of creating design excellence yes. and not letting anything get in the way of that. We we had that in common. Our personal styles were very different, and we ended up figuring out how to work these style differences. Mm. So when I need, when I was with a client or was trying to win a client, and I needed the European advantage, the accent, the thick German accent, <laughs> oh the genius. I come on, man, I need your help to land this one. If he's working with a, if he was working with a, or trying to win a, like, especially like a, a Japanese or Korean client, okay. he just confused them so much. So he would say to me, 
hey Dan, come over here. I need your okay. I need your help to land this. Okay. I, I need your the friendly American. The friendly American. <laughs> so we were like point counterpoint. Okay. And very effective. We go in meetings and just crush it. And we could be very convincing. Now we also recognized that we needed a bunch of really great people, so we started hiring. We started to grow the company. I um remember bringing in so many interesting people. My gosh, we uh we hired Brett Lovelady, who founded Astro. Mm. That was in 91 or 92. Brett, if you're listening, tell me what year that was. Then we brought Gadi Ahmed, the founder of New Deal Design. Oh, wow. Okay. We hired him in like, I want to say 94. This is the SF hub. Yeah. And then uh, Eve Behar called me. He came over for an interview. I hired him. Okay. Wow. And so we were... We were like a bunch of really, <laughs> you really, yeah, a bunch of sure. badasses. I mean, we were like somebody said to me at that time that Ideo was the symphony orchestra, okay, and Lunar was the jazz band, mm -hmm. and we were hard rock and roll. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. And I, I smiled at first. I thought that's ridiculous, and I thought, yep, <laughs> that was it. Nice. And and you know that we were. Uh, always contentious with one another i mean we, we challenge one another For i think sure. i think when you're designing it challenge is a good thing yeah you need to be able to be comfortable when you're trying to really uncover something that's never been done before it's okay to be contentious it's all right i encourage interaction mm -hmm. go intellectual go deep um you can get weird Get experimental. Just don't be afraid yeah. to be judged. Too many designers are afraid to do that they're not doing the cool thing or whatever. I don't understand that, quite frankly. You just have to try things. Just keep trying yeah. and support one another. Yeah. But also challenge one another. That's a, yeah, that's incredible, you know, decade of work at Frog. Yeah, and um, it was just a matter of like just keep growing the company and it got to a point where Oh gosh, I worked on so many things. You know, I remember coming from Dreyfus, getting to Frog. It was like stepping on a, a one of these, you know, walkway conveyors. Oh yeah, but but, but it was turned up a little too high. <laughs> right, where you like stumble a little bit. I was, I was like, Are you kidding me? You want me? You know, like this much work you want me to yeah. do? Luckily, I, I loved it. You yeah. know, I was I was ready to just tear it up. Mm -hmm. I was just let's do this. That's and amazing. We just when you have that kind of attitude about just about anything, no matter what profession you're in, you're going to make things happen. Yeah. And luckily the culture supported that at that time. That, those were the golden years of Frog. That was it. Like, you know, mid-90s especially. Then we grew and we added software. And, it, and I kind of felt like I did my run there. Yeah. I, I met a lot of interesting people. I had the Rolodex of the gods. Somebody told me. It I, sounds I like it for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, and um, so it was just a matter of like, okay, well, the next thing is to start my own company. And I made a few calls to um, people that I had known, uh, Cisco Systems, Creative Labs, um, Sonic Blue, which was Rio Audio, and a few other companies, Replay TV. So started working with people like Anthony Wood, the founder of Roku, did his first product. Uh, we did the you first. Did the, first so the first Roku you worked on? Yeah. That's cool. Anthony came in and he's like, what do you think of the name Roku? It's my sixth startup. <laughs> like Anthony, 
You're asking me, dude, you've already, hey, this is your sixth one. It sounds good. <laughs> what were the other ones that he had started? Do you remember? Uh, the one that I had worked on prior to that was Replay TV, okay. which was a type of pre-streaming television. It was, like it was DVR. Was it DVR kind of? It was kind of like a DVR. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so right away, I mean, that, that, that was like jumping off of one conveyor belt onto another one that was made of titanium <laughs> and like, you know, like this was, you know, starting your own company. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to get into the details of that. So you started Whipsaw in 1999. Um, and I'd love to first talk about, talk about the name. Cause I think it's a really great, I I've, I've read it about it, but I think our listeners will enjoy the story behind the name. And then I also want to hear a bit the beginning of how you started was it just you at the beginning and you slowly grew or did you have a nest egg that you were able yeah. to you know save up and and just go all in or what was your kind of story there so yeah well first of all i was driven by um something that is very deep inside me i just i just felt like i had to do this mm-hmm. and that that notion actually started with my internships at Richardson Smith and George Nelson Associates. I also worked at HP as an intern, mm-hmm. but it's a big corporation. Yeah. And it, I kind of, that's the only time I've ever worked for a corporation. It was five months at HP. I loved it. They gave me a ton of freedom, but it was a big corporation. Right. And it's like, man, I am not cut out for the bureaucracy yeah. and just, you know, like giving an employee number and a badge. Oh, and yeah. It was yeah. just not me. Yeah. Not me. So I knew right away, that was a good lesson to get early on. It's like, I'm a consultant. That's mm-hmm. what I want to do. I need freedom. So I always knew I wanted to have my own firm. That's one thing. That, that's the most important thing. I did not do it for the money. Although if you want to make a great living as a designer, you either have to own your own company or be a VP in a corporation and stick with it long enough. Yeah. Or third is to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Go make your own products. Yeah. And hopefully one of them goes, you know, Dyson's a good example. You know, yeah. he was a designer for sure. And he really made it go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was more a matter of like having an attitude that I know I can make this happen, but it takes a lot of tenacity. You just have to tell yourself, okay, one step at a time. So find a good attorney just in case you're going to need that kind of help with contracts or whatever, find a great accountant. And in my case, I started at first alone. I was just designing in my dining room, you know, my computer and drafting board and all the tools. But I'll never forget that feeling. It was just so liberating for me, having worked in the, for other people, to suddenly, it was like popping my head out of a manhole and I saw this horizon that went to infinity. Yeah, all the I possibilities. Like, I can do anything. Yeah. Anything I want as a designer. And I felt like I had had, I've had, at that point, I'd had enough experience where I I could sell my work, sell myself, I had a portfolio that could get the work right away. 100%. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was kind of like, you know, walking in with a weed whacker. It's just, (laughs) it was just like, yeah, I'll never forget that, that feeling, the very beginning, this sort of, um, nascent feeling like I know success will happen, but, um, but it isn't there yet. You know, when you start from scratch right? and there's a nervousness to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel, I've always felt that like, if you aren't a little nervous, you're not doing it right. You should always be like a little bit nervous. Cause that means you're pushing yourself. Yeah. Right. right. So I, uh, to make it work, 
I, I fell back on what I knew how to do, and that mm-hmm. was design products. Yeah. So I just stayed true and very focused on that. So when I, I would just propose to a company that we would do something for them, well, in that case, me, um, I just had to follow through on it yeah. and just, just get into what I love to do. And therefore, I didn't find it to be that difficult. The request started to come in, and I brought in a friend of mine that was working at SGI. He had worked for Apple prior to that, Bob oh, wow. Rickamini, and I invited him in to to be the uh, to run engineering. Okay. Because a few of the a few of the projects I was getting early on, there were engineering components to it, mm. so that that became important. Yeah. And then just adding, you know, one project after the other. We didn't put up a website for the first year because I didn't want to just put a bunch of frog work on a website and say there's a new company, Whipsaw. Yeah. But I was, to get back to your earlier uh, comment about a Whipsaw, it's an unusual name. Yeah. You know, even then you needed an unusual name to stand out. I didn't want to be Harden and Associates. Yeah. You know. What I witnessed at Dreyfus was a lot of collaboration maybe too much, where they were always asking the client, what do you think? Okay. Well, can you choose, which design would you choose yeah. on the wall? And I'll never forget going up to Polaroid. And like, I already knew which the best direction was. Right, and don't let the client choose the best design. Yeah. This is the one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my boss said to me, well, Dan, you know, you have really Polaroid, they want to choose. Oh, I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. they're in marketing, they don't know what to choose. That's That would be like, me asking a doctor what's wrong with me well, what am i doing there at the doc's office yeah. if i'm going to determine that so i never agreed with that so it's almost too too much collaboration yeah. but i i recognize the importance of reciprocity and give and take but i got to frog and it was kind of the opposite it's like here client this is your solution mm. i could see the benefits in that but i but after being there 10 years i really recognized and enjoyed the fact of working collaboratively with people. I think design is a, an exchange, a narrative between people and objects and emotions and activity. And you're trying your best to craft the best combination of elements so yeah. that you can get a result that is beautiful, that's important, that's meaningful, that's sustainable. This is your aim as a designer. So I've also liked harmony. I think design generally speaking, should be harmonious. I mean, sometimes design wants to be, you need, you need harmony with edge. Sometimes okay. you want to design where it's like, I love this, it makes me feel good, but there's this other little annoying thing that's making the design really sticky. Interesting. It might be a detail. It might be a minor detail. Okay. It becomes major. <laughs> Dan, you're already, you're already great on the podcast. We always make the minor detail puns all the time. <laughs> no, I love it. Well, I love detailing, so uh, I think that's, I mean, Charles Eames said that there is no such thing as the whole design. It's just a collection of details. I love it. So, but I don't quite believe only that, but um, I like creating balance and harmony. I love the tension between design and engineering, between art and science. Mm -hmm. I've been fascinated by the romantic and the classical and how do you balance these things? How do you know where to be on the spectrum? from wild to mild and the the idea of a whipsaw two man a long two man saw somebody asked me whipsaw in 10 words whipsaw two man saw that epitomizes balance and cuts like hell okay 
was my answer. I love it. And so anyway, that it was a weird name that kind of stuck and it's great. Nobody can pronounce it in Asia. It's always comes out. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Uh, um, Wispa. Okay. Huh. <laughs> I'm always correcting. You got the, the S and the P. Wispa. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you started to grow Whipsaw and eventually started working with some very big name clients. You have Google, Nike under your, your belt, um, Uber. I'm curious, you know, is there any kind of uh, standout product from your past, you know, 24 years at Whipsaw that you felt that was like the most impactful product that you all have worked on? Wow. Um we are very diverse mm-hmm. and you're doing a lot of UX stuff nowadays. Yes. Um, engineering as well. And you had, you do the yeah. full suite of things. We do, but we're also in a lot of diverse categories. Mm-hmm. Consumer electronics is where we started pretty much and computing that led to networking, then made the decision to get into medical in 2003. There was kind of an economic downturn at that time and we really needed more diversity. Yeah. Then we got in, that led to life sciences. Then we decided to get into robotics. Like, I want to say like 12 years ago, we worked with Stanford Research Institute and did some robotic studies. Then, oh my gosh, we've gotten into so many wearables. We did the first, what, the first wearable was the Nike Fuel Band, which- Yeah, talk about about Nike Fuel Band, because I think that one is a a standout product to me. That feels like a really impactful product, at least from a consumer, right? There, I'm sure and there's I wouldn't, many... call, I wouldn't call that as, a, as one of our most impactful, but it's an interesting story because Mark Parker at the time wanted the Livestrong band okay. to, to uh, be alive. Those really popular, yeah, yeah. You know, they wanted electronics in there okay. that would be able to measure biometric data and mo- movement mostly. So they had had this relationship with Astro Studios. So Astro did a kind of a vision piece for them that was... Well, you know, it hadn't been developed. It was just like a starting point. Right. So Nike we said, well, we need to develop this a lot further. So they they looked out. They they found us. There was a little competition for the continuation of that product mm, to develop okay. it. And we won that. And it that was that was a difficult project. Yeah. Because it was very small. It had to do a lot. We wanted to engineer something that was truly extraordinary there were a lot of innovations there like 35 patents just on how things are manufactured there there's like no air inside that yeah we injection molded tpu on top of a circuit board that's insane for the first time including over you know the flow hot plastic over the top of the leds over the flex circuits over the back housing of where the battery would sit i mean it was pretty radical if you took one of those apart it was really pretty radical and i think does the usb connect as the clasp it does yeah, yeah. so i mean yeah. there's so many kind of unique things that i would agree seemed very new at the time that maybe we take for granted now but yeah um, i mean yeah we had a lot of that figuring out to do some of our some of our earlier so as far as like the standout things some of the earlier stuff um the, the rio audio the leapfrog product line you know the interactive mm-hmm. kid toys, reading books. That was really fun. Worked a lot with Jim Margraff on that. That was really fascinating. Then we did this product line for Eton, these field radios, and that made a big wave. I mean, everybody was like, oh, that's, you know, these, that's the definition of what rugged design is. 
then we did a baby bottle for a deary. That was a lot of fun working on that because it was so, it was so organic and it was gentle and quiet. Mm-hmm. And we invented a new way of manufacturing a baby bottle. And it, it's, we literally turned the problem upside down. Yeah. You filled it from the bottom, not the top. And it was soft and cuddly for both mom and baby. I mean, it was really, it was a game changer. It was it, all, it was changed it all, the industry. And it was all silicon, right? Or it, yeah, it wasn't silicon. The, the cycle time was okay. too long. So we worked with a, a materials company to, to invent a new material. We called it C-Flex. Mm, okay. And it was mostly a combination of elastomeric materials with a little bit of silicone. Okay. Silicone is a thermoset, so it takes a, a little bit longer time, the cycle times. We wanted to speed that up, so the cycle time was more like four seconds in the tool. Interesting. Anyway, it was really, that, that was pretty remarkable at the time. Then we did a lot of work, for, oh my gosh, oh, these different industries. Just fast forwarding, I think uh, Tonal was probably a, a, a big important product because it embodied so many of our disciplines all in one. Yeah, Tonal, I guess, is a... Some sort of exercise strength training system, yeah, yeah. You're, you're better, better yeah. explaining it, and it has a huge display on it that you can. Uh, there's there's a whole UX element to that as well. Yeah, it's UX, it's mechanical engineering, it's ID. It, it replaces it, a gym. Yeah, and it, it combined all of your skill sets. It combined everything, yeah. and I, it was a tough problem. What made it so fascinating to me is the fact that the founder of that company came over to my house with an electric motor that had a pulley with wire on it. Okay. And then that motor was connected to his computer. And he said, pull on this cable. I pulled on it, I guess so. And he's like, do it again. <laughs> that went from like 25 pounds to 100 right. pounds. I'm like, nice. that's it. Yeah. Let's do this. So um, we conceptualized immediately and worked on that for you know like a year and then Two and a half, three years later, it came out. Timing was pretty good because the pandemic was hitting right about then. Yeah, everybody's dropping their gym subscriptions, so all of a sudden, phew, there's tonal. It replaces a gym literally. Yeah. It is a an electric motor controlled by software, so all of the weights are digital. It's smooth. It's quiet. It's the Tesla of gyms. Yeah. I mean, it it is a completely different way of looking at the world. And for the fitness category, they were ready for that kind of innovation. And I was thrilled that so many people adopted that. It really made an impact on society. And it's selling well today. I mean, you turn on the television, you'll see LeBron James using it. It's amazing. Um, That's really cool. Uh, Dan, I want to maybe shift gears a little bit. I'm kind of curious, from a business standpoint with Whipsaw, um, how have you kind of expanded the business in terms of, I'm sure you, you know, quote, uh, in various ways. I'm curious, like, do you work with startups on equity basis? I mean, obviously a lot of times some startups may not have the capital, um, to work with a big, big consultancy. Um, there's all kinds of different ways to work. And also I, I do want to get to, uh, Scrolla because that seems like you are starting your own business on the side. So maybe you could speak to a little bit of that, um, Structure-wise, sure, sure. how you organize those uh, It's a great question. It's one that industrial designers, and ge- designers in general, don't talk about enough. Yeah. So, there, you know, there's this whole misnomer. I'm amazed how little designers know about business. Yeah. It still amazes me, the questions I get around this. Yeah. First of all, 
most of our work is fee-based. Mm -hmm. And if you're a designer, you want to drive the value of what you do as a service up as high as you possibly can so that you can do the great work For sure. that that client deserves. Sometimes design takes time, so you need to be very persuasive about, first, what is the fair value of what you're about to provide? We first established that. What is this project worth? Mm -hmm. 45% of our clients, 40% of our clients are startups. The rest are, oh, you know, Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 right. clients. Yeah. I kind of like the mid-sized companies. Oftentimes, the great big companies are a little bit more difficult to work with because you have a lot of middle managers mm -hmm. and you sometimes don't get to meet the CEO. So you're not exactly sure where they want to go and you're doing more guessing. When you're working with a startup, you're working with founders. You find your champion right away. and You always have to have a champion on the client side. It's not just about you. If they can't pull it off, you're going to be a consultant. If they can't pull it off, well, it's, your work doesn't matter. Yeah. What does matter is what you produce in the end, and they ship in the end. Mm -hmm. Industrial designers produce mass-produced products that people enjoy. Sometimes we'll do a vision piece, like our Raven Chord Piano, something that I wanted to do because I love music. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's a, a beautiful piano. It has this kind of, I, would, I almost want to say like a spiral uh, back to it that shows off the strings. It's, it's really unique. It pre yeah, it's presenting the strings to the audience, mm -hmm. so it's it's a I call it a front projection upright piano. Yeah, it's what should have always been done, in my opinion. Yeah, instead of this mysterious black box, we can talk about that later. But anyway, so sometimes you have to do a vision piece. But when you're working with startups, establish the fair value of what you're going to do. A lot of times they can't afford it. Right. So, and sometimes we believe in it so much where we tell them we don't want to charge for this. Interesting. We, we want to do this for stock. Okay. Occasionally we'll do it for only stock. Very occasionally. I mean, that's, that's like that. I feel like that is a really big risk. I mean, maybe once you're more established and you can take those risks on. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why you have to make sure that other parts of your business, whether you're right. selling products on your own or you're, you're just doing a really fine business with your fee based mm -hmm. clients that you can afford to take that kind of risk. Yeah. That's great. That's a luxury when you can do that. It's more common, however, where we can provide a discount anywhere between 15 and 50% right. discount in lieu of receiving shares. Um, we can do warrants. Usually sometimes you get preferred shares. You, you try for the, you go for the top right, every time. Yeah. Of course, if you're working with mid-sized companies or public company, they're just like, oh, you want stock? Well, just go buy stock. Yeah. You're not going to get stock. <laughs> For sure. Clients. So, you know, you just have to know, like, when is right. Yeah. And usually the larger companies can afford a, a project fee much more than a... Usually, but not always. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes those marketing departments or engineering departments, that you know, they get, they get X amount to spend per year. And, right. You know, some are ridiculous. Some are, I won't, I won't name them, but they'll come to you with like a project that should be 500,000. They're like, well, we have 50,000, Dan, okay. you know, like, come on. Your X corporation and that's, design has got to be worth more than, than that. Oh, man. On, on the flip side, sometimes you have a startup that so badly wants you or just loves design mm -hmm. and they're willing to pay a lot for it. Yeah. Um, 
So there are other cases when, and this is not as common as it was before, but instead of equity, you can get royalty. Right. If you feel as a designer that volume production will be likely, high volume will be likely, it's smart to do a royalty deal, but royalty deals are hard to hold together. They're like, since Oppenheimer's out, so it's, it's like an unstable nucleus. Okay. So Did you watch the movie? No, I haven't seen okay. it yet, no. <laughs> I guess it's top of mind. Because it, there are so many factors, you know, business factors that can make it convenient for your client that six months or a year or five years later, oh, gee, we forgot to pay that. Mm. You know, you have to be you on top of that them. client. Yeah. You need, and, you know, it's, nobody wants to be a pest. So for me to tell my attorney, keep on top of them, Right. Audit their books, yeah. and you always have to have audit rights. It's just a little invasive. It's it's a bit of a trouble. So royalties are not as as um, juicy as you would think. Yeah. Equity, on the other hand, yes, you're taking a risk, and sometimes it'll pay off, and sometimes yeah, some of them have paid off for us, and others haven't. Some become worthless. Yeah. You know, especially in tech, you might you might think that this company that you're about to do work for has got the latest greatest all the best things are going to change life forever it's obsolete after a year yeah. somebody else comes along with something better right so you just have to really know like tonal of course we took stock in that so that is just fundamental it's an it it's elemental to to being alive yeah exercise food eating water earth air all of these things are the elemental side of design usually those are very satisfying kinds of projects to work on yeah would you say especially i, I don't know I, i've maybe felt this a couple of times where you have a client approach you and it, it it feels very elemental or fundamental that what they're building is obviously needs to exist and those i feel like those are the moments where it feels much more enticing to take equity and kind of championing you know the product from you know, kind of, you're involved in it too. You have a, uh, you know, stake in the the game. I don't know. I don't know how you feel. How you kind of parse through that. Um, I think it's um, if you have a product that should exist. Yeah. It does not necessarily mean it's going to be financially successful. Okay. You take stock when you think there's a there's an upside potential. Yeah. For success. Sometimes if, if a project is so benevolent, it just needs to be done, we will do it for as, as much as we can get and not more. Yeah. Just because it has to be done. Right. Um, I'm curious also, how do you, now that you have a pretty large team, I wouldn't at least on your website, maybe there's around 20 people. Maybe you could correct me. Yeah, we're about 30. 30 now. Yeah, we need to grow too. We Um, have a lot of demand. How do you structure your projects? How many projects do you take on it at a time? Um, Do you sit down at the beginning of the the project and and sketch with your fellow designers? And then I assuming they kind of take it to the next level and and do the renderings and, and 3D work. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, every, have, every studio has a little different, you know, working structures. So. Yeah, right. At any given moment, we have about 50 or 60 active projects. Okay. That's a lot. Wow. Some of them are, some of them might be a few phone calls a week. Um, 
they are often there often be like three or four projects per client, but they are projects. Yeah. Individual projects. Each one needs attention. Yeah. In some manner or another, it needs attending to maybe some management uh, expectation setting or some incredibly deep deliverable that you need to provide. We establish a process. Each process is a little bit different for, for different clients. They generally start with, you know, a, a deep immersion. We have to understand what, what's the problem, mm-hmm, who's the sure. user, where are the opportunities, typical SWOT kind of analysis. Um, we try to frame a solution that's pretty direct. We don't try to oversell. We don't need a program to be much larger than maybe it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I Yes, I, I love design, but I am so bad at CAD that I, don't, I just don't do it anymore. Yeah. So, but I can draw. Yeah. And my sketches are usually pretty descriptive. I put dimensions on everything. So, okay. I mean, I can, my designs, I, I, there'll be section views and exploded views and nice. very complete. Nice. Perfect little perspectives. Okay. Um, and I joke with my team. Somebody asked me, like, well, what CAD do you use? And I said, I'll use AutoCAD. People are like, I said this in a lecture to a school, and they're like, AutoCAD? Isn't that some, like, old CAD program? <laughs> I said, no, no, my AutoCAD is when, <laughs> it's when I give a sketch to a designer and I stand behind them and oh. it automatically goes into CAD, which was, like, kind of, a, kind of a crappy thing to say, but... But I, when I work with my team, I love working with people, and I joke with them. We try all kinds of things, and I've got great people with amazing talent, and they can sometimes take a sketch of mine and just lift it up. You know, yeah. by the time you get into CAD, and then I'll come around and we'll mess with details and change it, and I'll make all these different requests, and they come up with great stuff too to build on it. Yeah. Design is a journey. It's not just a, a, wow, somebody thought of something and put it down. This is what a lot of young designers just don't under, seem to understand. You don't just suddenly come up with it and then put it in CAD and it's done. No, it's step by step. You, it's betterment. It's improvement. You discover what isn't working. Yeah. And you're, you're one step at a time. It's a little bit of a game. You, you, know, you learn something. It's like, ah, that's, that's what I call them truths. You, know, you establish a truth. And you begin to scaffold a problem, and it gets more and more refined, higher resolution, to the point you are beginning to perfect it. You keep refining. You keep going. You can always make something higher performance. You can always make it more beautiful. Yeah. You can always make it more sustainable. Point is, you just have to. You have to be tenacious with it. You cannot give up. You can't just say, "Well, I'm tired of designing this thing." <laughs> It's rigorous. It's design hard. is industrial design yeah. is is it's still hard. I mean, the tools there are much better. Mm-hmm. They've streamlined things. You know, yeah. uh, the, you know, CAD and three D printing. I mean, I was dreaming about that stuff. You know, <laughs> at the beginning of my career. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. I love that insight onto kind of the how you work day to day. I do want to just touch on um, Scrolla just because I'm a big chair guy. I love chairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think many designers do. And Scrolla does seem like a, you know, I, I don't know if I want to say passion project, but it seems like it was self-initiated by you and you've built up a company around this chair. So I'm kind of curious what your plans are for that and how you envision the future of that. Sure. You know, a chair, 
to me, a lounge chair yeah. specifically, it's kind of the quintessential design problem. Right? It always has preach. been. I love it. Yeah. You know, like every architect has tried it, some successfully and some not. I mean, <laughs> okay. let's be honest. There's sure. a lot yeah, of yeah. bad chairs out there, right? So I hadn't really in my career focused much on furniture. But it doesn't mean I'm not interested in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been buying fine furniture for my whole life. I love it. Yeah. And I love materials. I love human factors. I like beautiful things. I like to create beautiful things. I do this for a living. Of course. And a chair embodies a lot of these things. I like that a chair has both positive and negative space. It's a little different than, say, a self-contained product like that typewriter or this phone. The negative space is maybe even more important Mm -hmm. because that's where your body is delivered. So I was like, I'm going to do a chair. So in my free time, I started sketching chairs and I, I amassed probably 150 pages of chairs and it got to a point where I was sort of inspired by this certain shape that kind of reminded me of like when you put your hands on your thighs when you sit down. And I wanted to, so that was the first little bit of inspiration, this kind of scroll-like shape. But I really set out to do, I was like, if I'm going to do a chair, it can't just be another chair. I should be able to get a patent on it. It should have a utility patent. Okay. On top of a design patent. I want to use as few parts as possible so that it's sustainable. I need to basically imbue it with everything I believe in Mm -hmm. as a designer. Of course, it had to be attractive. Of course. It had to be comfortable. It had to make a statement within a space. It had to be contemporary. And yet, in my case, I also wanted it to be a little bit referential to mid-century modern, which is my favorite era of furniture. I didn't, I didn't set out to create a mid-century modern furniture piece. But one thing, like all the design projects, one thing leads to another. So I had a couple breakthroughs, I guess you could call them, where one is figuring out how to create this shape because it's not bent wood. You can't bend wood that much. Interesting, okay. Wood will bend, you know, like a 90-degree corner, not bad. You can bring it almost all the way around, but to take the whole seat and bend it around. I wanted to, I thought of it, and this has been, it had been done before, but not very often, where you can take layers of epoxied veneer and place them inside a vacuum bag underneath a form that you then bring the wood around. It right. squeezes it against the form. Yeah. You let the epoxy set, then you remove the form, and you're left with the shape. Mm-hmm. So I found a group of furniture makers over in Oakland, across the water from where I was. And these guys were willing to try it. They're like, there's not a straight line on this chair, Dan. <laughs> Um, it's very fluid. It's very organic. We yeah. know what you're after, but we're, we, you know, we recently out of the Redwood School of Furniture Design, so we're going to give this a go. Okay. They were incredible to work with. That's amazing. This Voreth Design worked over in over in Oakland. It's a beautiful chair. Thanks. Um, and so then I, so we had to experiment with the seat. Once I got the seat to work, it was over in the shop, and we drew this around the form, and I. I was so delighted when that thing popped out because I stood up on it. I was trying to break it. Yeah. It, so then it was a matter of the, you know, putting the other elements together. The other thing I really wanted is 
again, in order to get a utility patent, you can't just assemble a chair like any other chair. Right. These legs go through holes in the seat and attach on the underside of the arm. Therefore, there's no need for an understructure to provide the, the cantilever twisting forces that every chair goes through. These four legs mm -hmm. on this chair are being held back because this bar here is giving right. the extra support. When you come all the way through the seat and attach underneath the arms, now you've got a box form. That was one thing that was new. Yeah. The other was the legs underneath the seat are a bigger diameter than the post coming through to the underside of the arm, which means that all of the weight of the person and the chair is sitting on a shoulder. Yeah. Which meant there was no fancy joinery needed. These, you lay that down and you push it in the hole and it attaches to underneath the, underneath the arm. Beautiful. And it's rock solid. Yeah. Then the back just stub tenon mortises into the back leg. So the back never touches the seat. It gave it, so then collectively, finally the result was it gave it a, um, I, I, there was this handshake that I like where the back is coming in through this hole in the back. If you look at the back of that chair, especially it's super expressive. For something that's like a lounge chair, it can be expressive. Sometimes yeah. design, you know, I don't, I don't want this to be, this phone that I'm holding my, right. I don't want this to be so expressive where I get so tired of it. But something like a chair that's decorative, that's in my home, it is the feature of the home. I have one in a house down in Carmel, and I, it's so you walk in, everybody says, oh my God, where'd you get that chair? <laughs> I made it. Because, you know, it, it's, it's like, it, it is the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes the room. Well, I think what, what's beautiful about listening to you talk about the chair is when you see it for the first time, it's a beautiful molded plywood chair, but hearing the details about how the legs fit in and it's all structurally cohesive makes me love it even more. I, you know, I think this is also something that I, th that I wish I would see more of in the design industry today. Cause when I, when I look out into the furniture scene, especially in New York, we have a lot more of the art furniture, high design stuff. Yeah. It does tend to just be more art. There's not a lot of design and utility thinking into what is being built. And certainly there's merit on the art side of things. But yeah, I, I just love that you explained how those mortise and tennis, you know, work for the backrest. And definitely, if you're watching this, we probably can put an image up or you can check it out on the website. But uh, and by the way, on top of the construction method, which did get a utility patent, it had to be comfortable. Of course. A lot of designers forget that, <laughs> especially in furniture. Yeah. So, of course, the dimensions are important. You have to honor that, in my opinion. So, you know, the front edge is 14 inches off the floor. The back seat is 11. So oh. it's accounted, you know, about a 13-degree slant on the seat, but the arms are horizontal. If you wanted to put your phone or your, even, God forbid, you put a coffee on there, but if you did, it's not going anywhere on the arm. Having at least 100 degrees on the, the backrest was important. So that's all worked in. So when you sit in this chair, you can stay in that chair for a long time. Yeah, and there's no cushion. It's all... It's all there's wood. no cushion. There's an optional cushion that yeah. drops in there like a puzzle piece between those four legs. Mm -hmm. But I like it in its pure state. Yeah, it and it just... It, yeah, it looks beautiful. I mean, like, I think your, your idea of having that low... very. I mean, it's a really low seat, 11 inches on the... The back for right? the butt, yeah. It's a little bit like, uh, not quite as steep as an Adirondack chair, mm -hmm. but for a very comfortable chair, eleven at the at the back of the seat, the bottom of the seat is actually very comfortable and not that unusual. Yeah, for like one of these, you know, great 
lounge chair. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's a lounge chair. Yeah. It's not a dining chair. Um, and then in terms of uh, Scrolla's business plan, I mean, it, you've started this chair and you're going to, I guess, I'm assuming you're going to build a business around it or how, how is that going to? Well, good play? question. I mean, they're, they're for sale. They are expensive. They're right. like 7,500 a piece, but these are all handmade mm -hmm. by artisans and they come in beautiful walnut, teak, ash. If you want to do a custom finish, that's cool. <laughs> we did we did a white one I thought was kind of strange looking. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Painted or like white No, wash? no, it used a conversion varnish. It used okay. a like a like a pickled dye, Got it. a white dye. You can still see the grain yeah. of the wood. It's beautiful, but it's just not nearly as nice as the teak. Mm -hmm. I like the teak. It really works well. Oh, the other thing it was really cool is instead of using veneer all the way through, hardwood veneer, the core veneers are bending poplar. Okay. So it's cheap and it's lightweight. The whole chair weighs, how much would you think that chair weighs? Oh, I don't, maybe. It's uh, a large format lounge chair. I would say 150 pounds. It weighs pounds? 19 pounds. What, how much? 19 pounds. Oh, I'm way off. <laughs> you can pick it up with your baby finger. Wow, that's a lightweight chair. Yeah, so it's lightweight. So I really wanted it to also be, like I said, su as sustainable as possible. I mean, it is a yeah. chair and these, you know, anytime you make anything, you need to be aware of its impact. Yeah, Even for sure. a paperclip is an environmental impact. You have to be aware of that as an industrial designer. Everything makes an impact. Yeah. Um. By the way, that started me out. You know, I, I, oh, so to answer your question about the, the chair, uh, they're for sale. Right now, they're kind of a boutique-y kind of product. Sure, Eventually, mm -hmm. you know, it will likely because it's fairly new and not that many people know about it but um you know if we'll see you know i have an open mind you have to just always keep keep yeah. an open mind to me it wasn't the, the 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 end game i didn't have an end game other than to actualize on a vision that i had that's it yeah you just, that's you important just, yeah i feel like i agree it's like sometimes you have this great idea and you just have to make it you just have to make it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was sitting on one of the shelves of my mind. Yeah. And what good is it up there gathering dust? <laughs> I had to get it out. I feel that too. I mean, I got, you, you've seen them all. I got plenty of. Yeah, you, I mean, um, that's the other thing. Do not, uh, if there are any students listening, I mean, if you have just, it starts as like a little tiny dream and a notion. Just make it happen. Just do it. Yeah. I mean. I'm all about that. I love that. Um, if we have some more time, some more time, Dan, I don't know. You know, I know you have a. You're a busy man. Um, we could get into some questions or some topics. Let's do it. Um, so I have this written down. Oh, here. I was going to show you a, a chair. I'm not going to show the camera. Okay. It's, uh, you want to pull it up? That's fine. The next one. Oh, okay. The oh, I get the exclusive look. This okay. is exclusive. Nobody's seen <laughs> this yet. We're this uh, is, just going to tease the listeners here. <laughs> this one is kind of the opposite. Uses uh, steel and a recycled plastic. It's okay. very different. Uh, but don't say anything about oh, yeah. what you're looking at there. Wow. Wow. Okay. Wow. Oh, that's that's amazing. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Very different, right? It's very different. Uh, that's this is, that's beautiful. That's a that's a statement piece for sure. This is super comfortable. Again. Yeah. The right angles. This just hugs you. Oh, I'm sure the listeners are just uh, dying right yeah, now. Yeah, that's why I did this. A little bit of showtime here. But yeah, this one is uh, this let's, one's coming. Let's keep a lookout for that. What, uh, this is the back view. 
Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. Thanks. That's 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 amazing, Dan. I'm I'm excited to see you branch out into furniture. Um, so yeah, I, actually, that led to um, ancient ritual. Have you seen this on our website? Ye- yes. Oh, it's this, a recent recent it's, one. It's a, it's, it was announced like uh, like two weeks ago okay. or something. This it's, is like a sauna type. It's an experiential sauna. It was okay. inspired by. Um, well, one is a startup came to us with this big idea, but I think these guys were inspired by the fact that we all need more downtime. We need some internal peace. And their idea was, if can we create a little individual environment that encourages one to just truly relax, improve yeah. your sleep, um, improve your health, bring mind and body together. So we created this. It's like a chamber. It sounds weird, but it's a small chamber you get inside. Mm-hmm. It is a piece of furniture. It's all Hinoki cypress from Japan. It's a su- sustainable wood. Wow. There's heat. There's chroma therapy. Yeah, beautiful we lights. Used light on the walls. It feels like you were in a place with no dimension when you're inside this thing because of what's happening with the light and the details. It's very personal. It's It's soft is it actually a sauna or is it more about like a warm no it's actually a sauna okay. there are ir transmitters on the walls okay there's a heater in the ceiling okay yeah check it out it's called ancient ritual it's beautiful yeah i mean it's it's super simple and it seems like i, I mean i would love to try it out one day uh i checked it out on the website um all right dan yeah i'm i'm kind of curious so we have a few topics down here um we have some from your team that says trends in design outside of AI. Um, and we <laughs> could talk about AI, but I think, you know, I, I think uh, we've probably talked about it enough um, in past episodes and you have your own podcast and I've heard your thoughts on it. But I'm kind of curious, are there any other trends that you're seeing in design that maybe aren't as appar- apparent um, that you are kind of interested in? I think also, you know, living in San Francisco, you're in the tech hub, you kind of see the new tech coming up. Um, I don't know, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, uh, interesting enough, I wouldn't answer it with, with trends on technology. As a matter of fact, technology is almost like a foregone conclusion. Everybody expects the technology. Mm. So if anything, what I'm enjoying that designers, including us, what we're trying to do is kind of celebrate the technology by not necessarily upfront celebrating it, mm. like push it in the back seat, let okay. it influence the driver and provide much more techno ambience. Just the feeling that the tech is there, the magic is there, but let the experience drive the solution. Let the, the human element, the tactile elements, the, yeah. the maybe the, the, whatever the end user's state of mind at the, at the time of use, at the time of consumption of that technology, let that moment drive the design. Right. So what that means is a lot of products are, are using more natural materials like we've been discussing. Designs have become maybe a little bit more humble. That's kind of nice. They don't have to be in your face all the time. Sometimes yeah. I want design to be present. I want it to carry values. I want to be proud of it if it is, or, or maybe appropriately, I want to identify with it. Like I want it to fit within my life. Yeah. So I think design in that way is becoming a little bit more respectful. I think it's slowly becoming more sustainable. I'm glad to hear that clients asking for sustainability. Yeah. 
Is it a trend yet? I no, but yeah. it's getting closer. Yeah, I'm happy to see. There is a continuation of this reductionist trend that that companies like Braun started a long time ago, and Apple continued. Yeah, I'm curious why. I'm curious that you've said in reductionist as opposed to minimalist. Do you have a distinction there? or I have a distinction okay. because a lot of times when you're doing reductionist design, you are taking things away. Mm. You're reducing. You're not, it's oftentimes reducing not just the amount of material, it's the mass, it's the volume, but it's also the, the various steps you have to go through to make something. Mm. You're reducing. You're taking things away. It ends up sometimes being minimal, but I think it's, it's more proactive to say it's reductionist. I like that. Yeah, because it could be... It could still be a statement piece, but you know the way you got there was a really simple way of manufacturing or something. Yes. Yeah. To okay. reduce is a verb. Right. Minimalism is a noun. Yeah. Minimal is a noun. Okay. You know, or a state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, I think it makes it more active when it's when it's uh, when you're constantly thinking about reduction. You have to be careful if you're thinking that way as you are reducing, not to take the soul out of what, whatever you're. For sure. Creating. Yeah. And you have to be aware, uh, deeply aware of, like, what is the effect of what you're, you're about to propose to the end user? What, what are you doing to this design? And whatever your, your path is, it's going to get you to your solution. You need to be aware of every little decision that you make as you are reducing or mm-hmm. increasing or adding or subtracting or multiplying. It's, it should be a, an intelligent act that is rational and using reason while at the same time on a different track just like railroad tracks there is a sense of emotion and joy and delight and how can i keep the end user engaged with whatever this thing is i'm proposing that they consume Um, other trends i think people are finally starting to question what it means to be a consumer i think i think consumers are they're becoming a little bit more responsible. Yeah. They're aware of the things that they're producing. And I think, I think it, the pandemic probably alerted everybody to the fact that it's not about quantity of life, it's about quality of life. If you think about like quality of life, everything that you interact with, the people in your life, the experiences, the things that you purchase, are they making a contribution? When you're thinking about quality of life or when Quality of life isn't so great, you know, when you're wearing a mask and you go into the store and there's, everybody's bleak. Right. And the future doesn't look great. Yeah, it gives you some perspective. Yeah. It gives you perspective yeah. and it just, it, it just reminds you that good, timeless design mm. that, that even maybe sometimes you have to pay a little bit more for, but something you want to keep for a longer time, that's important. So yeah. I think quality of life and quality of design really go well together. I, I, yeah, I hope that's the trend. You know, uh, I don't know if I can call it a trend yet, but I, I am definitely seeing it because we're getting more inquiries about like quality of life related products. Yeah, I mean, there definitely was certainly during the pandemic a big, I would say, rethinking of what we have in our home just because we were spending so much time in our home, and I can see that kind of manifesting itself yeah. in the next yeah. decade or so. But by the way, AI, yes. <laughs> AI, of course. That's huge. Um, I don't know what it's going to do to the field of design. It's definitely going to influence it. It is now. Right now, we're all excited about it. Yeah. 
it feels magic. Like it does. It do. I, I am curious. You, I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you said ADI, Artificial Design Intelligence. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious why you made that distinction or if that was something that you've heard before. Um, I, it, I mean, it's ADI is generative AI. Okay, so you're right? just kind of referring so to... AI, I think people just design. generally... When people talk about AI, you know, chat, GPT-4, you know, right. there's not enough talked about AI and when it comes to creativity. Yes, okay. In, in our definition of creativity. Yeah. So... Yeah, so I guess I was referring to ADI as to get a little bit more specific yeah. and the effect it's going to have on how we create. Um, I, how have you all been using the tools currently? Are you you know, using generative image technology at the studio to kind of um, inspire new ideas? Are you using uh, chatbots to you know, bounce you know, different ideas off off? I don't know, the, the artificial intelligence, have you kind of dip, dove into that or are you just kind of seeing it from a broader level? One is level? It's, it's not advanced enough to just, you know, give your prompts right. and like, boop, there's something that's really quite appropriate. You get, you get some pretty, re- if it's, if you're working on a design project and you put in a, I don't know, 10 words or even a lot more than that, what you're going to get out is kind of garbagey right, right now. So it's a bit of a joke. And we, yeah. we actually are, you know, passed around images like, you know, we might be working on a, you know, some kind of device and you try to, to produce that. It's not going to come out how you expect. Right. How we're using it um, carefully is producing environments mm. that can help to define the context of something. Because sometimes when you're designing a product, a lot of times, you know, let's say you're in SolidWorks or Rhino or it's floating around in this environment and to put it in context early helps you understand. And again, closing imagination gap in design process is a lot about that. I love that. That's interesting. So just seeing it, you know, you could take your product and like put it in the hands of an AI person yeah, or an AI environment of use ultimately. And it changes your idea right away. Yeah. It changes I mean, how your, your perception of, of whether or not this is a good concept or not course i mean designs don't exist in a vacuum they exist in our lives they need to have yeah. context yeah i love that that's a great, a great I, I just tip. believe very much in context and that's something that designers don't necessarily think enough about mm-hmm. context yeah. is, can be one of your your truth cornerstones that you you build to like okay that that environment of use is not going to change right let it influence your design accept that it will influence it. Accept it. You just yeah. have to accept it. Yeah. To me, designers are like, no, no, people are going to love this because look how beautiful it is. In the uh, the white background, you know, Le Manouche render, it's just like right. perfect. Yeah, with right. lighting. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, I love that, Dan. That's, that's some great insight there. Um, we have some questions here from our podcast listeners. Um, and then I have a few closing questions. But I thought this one was interesting and... You know, it's it's certainly a, a tougher question, but uh, this one comes from Kerosy. They say, how do you feel about the moral implications of designing uh, products that you you know may or may not have aligned values with? And they, they reference, you've worked on some, um, your team's worked on some, uh, I guess, gaming slot machines for, uh, like electronic uh, slot machines for casinos and, and right. places like that. So I'm kind of yeah. curious to hear about that and how you approach those 
type of projects? I love these kind of questions when it comes to design ethics. Yeah. Um, designers do have a lot of responsibility. You have to think about the impact that your product, your solutions are providing to people. Actually, in, in like 2005, we were approached by a, a slot machine company, IGT. They were the biggest in the world at the time. And we had no interest. Yeah. Honestly, at first, we had no interest. Yeah. Like, you know, right. I've never gambled. Like, I don't even like those machines. So we did a quick investigation because they really liked us. They're like, we, we love the fact that you haven't designed these. But we like the way you think as designers. We think you can really change this industry for mm. the better. Mm-hmm. And... We went down to see a casino. I hadn't been in very many. Which, where around. did you go? Did you go to Vegas? Las Vegas, okay. Yeah. And I noticed terrible human factors. Mm. I noticed people being addicted to the machine just because of the fact that they were there was this hope that they were going to win. Right. Speakers that were like glommed on like Mickey Mouse ears and terrible video experience. The human factors on the keyboards... People were leaning against the, this coin tray, which haven't dropped coins in decades. Okay. Dusty, yeah. But they were, their women's and men's shins were bruised because they were leaning against right. this thing. I thought, this is ridiculous. Somebody needs to do something about this. Yeah. We were probably the least likely to get that project. They interviewed a lot of firms. I liked these people very much. One of, one of the guys became a good friend. That's... Um, they were a leader in this industry. So we, had, we said, if you let us start from the carpet and work our way up, we'll see what we can do. Our objective was not to provide an addictive machine that encouraged more gambling, but it was to provide an entertainment experience that had value to people. Mm-hmm. So we did what a lot of designers would have done. We made it. We made the design cool, flush displays, integrated speakers, much better interaction models with the keyboard and the control of monies going in and prints coming out and having an understanding of where you are throughout the game Yeah. so you don't over, overspend. And then we wanted to see what we could do with this industry by just elevating it. One machine led to the next, and then we began working with one of our favorite clients. They're amazing people, Aristocrat. We also worked with uh, AGS at the time, and we've since designed quite a few of the machines. And indeed, the effect that we have had on that industry is enormous. Yeah. 40% of the machines now we have designed, if you walk in any casino. Wow. Ritzcrat went from like number three or four to number one. They are the ones that are fun, that are tall and... Um, every detail is worked out. We've yeah. had so much fun designing these things. They are not the beasts that everybody thinks they are. Yeah. And they are bringing a lot of people entertainment and delight. And that's, that is one thing that design can do for people. Yeah. Give you know, on the one hand, you, you, know, you yeah. want design to be this altruistic activity where you are saving lives. <laughs> sure, yeah. You yeah. know, we've designed <laughs> surgical products. Yeah, yeah. Surgical products, where we are asked to help conceptualize how a surgery is done. We are not doctors, but we like to figure stuff out. That's one side of design, this kind of like enabling life, supporting it. 
letting it unfold in the, in the, in the kindest manner possible, really creating meaningful design. Yeah. And that's, of course, what we like to do. But, you know, there's also this thing about entertainment and delight. We are humans. And being alive, you know, for the short period of time that we have on this planet. Right. You want to have a good time. For sure. Definitely. And design can help that. Yeah. Again, I use the word help. <laughs> it's like. Um, yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting uh, story. And I, I also appreciate the question that was asked. Just because, you know, I, I think there is often this time of, like, I've heard this advice before, and I think it comes especially from, you know, in, in school people will ask, well, what if, you know, a company isn't sustainable? Should I work with that company? And I think designers, it, it, it's almost like designers are afraid to work for companies that, uh, you know, aren't sustainable or maybe not have the same values, but that's the companies we should be helping out. It's like we have those, you know, elements to bring them closer to to that goal of being sustainable or providing entertainment value or whatever it may be um it's not like when a when a client approaches you and you if you turn them away it's not like they close down their business it's not like this thing where they're just disappear they're going to go to another designer who maybe won't do a great as a job or you know maybe doesn't care as much as you do um so i know i i thought that was a really great question um well you know this i mean this whole dichotomy of being an industrial designer where you are asked to help create more products that sell more in higher volumes (laughs) works against almost all sustainability values yeah almost all of them and that's always a tough thing especially when you know james and i it's hard to talk about sustainability just because it it feels like this um hypocritical topics from coming from a designer who just makes products and produces a ton of products. Um, but I think, you know, you no, make, you a, don't, you, yeah, you're you making, usually, no, you usually don't, right. You're, you're making your client is, and, and you're advising on how to do this right. Right. Yeah, yeah. It is incumbent upon you as a designer to make sure that you're using as little material as possible. Again, what we were talking about before to make it so that people want it, for longer periods of time in their life. Yeah. So it's, it's used for a much longer period of time because of its other values and goodness. Right. That it uses the right kinds of materials. You're supposed to bring your knowledge to the table as a designer. Yeah. So that you know if something has a higher likelihood to have, for example, microplastics in it or any kind of hazardous materials. It's up to you to bring that accountability to the fore. Yeah. You have to do it. And... I mean, we work with this uh, company, TP-Link, and they produce, we started working with them. They were like number 10 in the industry, networking industry. Right. They make routers and Wi-Fi adapters. And they're number one now. Wow. Okay. They're they're like 40% market share. It's crazy of networking products. They produce upwards of 3 million units a month. Oh, wow. A month. It's insane. So... They ask us to design, and they're open to sustainability. Now, sustainability to them also means they save more money because we're using less plastic. For sure, yeah, yeah. In order to get them to understand that sustainability is a strong value that they should have, we needed to turn sustainability into a monetary factor Mm -hmm. to make sure they understood, hey, you know, you're saving five cents for each one of these three million units you're selling a month. Yeah, you know, combining parts and making things automated, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's just the simplification, the reduction. Right. We're talking about a reductionism. And 
Yeah, so we have these responsibilities. Yeah. But it's something, you, yeah, I mean, there, were, there have been times in my career where something has been produced where I'm like, man, it's, I'm singing in the dumps. Right. You know, I remember, I remember pulling a toaster out of a dumpster once that I worked on. I recognized the corner of it mm. in, a, in a sea of junk in this dumpster, and I reached down and pulled on the cable, the, the power cable. And lifted it out. It was a sunbeam toaster. I lifted it up and looked at it like it was a dead animal. Oh, my gosh. It was used for a long period of time. It yeah. was yellow. It had a patina on it. Mm. It's something I designed a frog. And at first, I was like, oh, my God. You know, When you see the death of one of your products, when you see that full circle like that, it's, it's humbling. Yeah. It really makes you think. Like the, the, the one little saving moment there for me was... The crumbs were falling out of it, and I, I thought of all the families that had had yeah. their breakfast and the kids that grew up using this, and you know, like, yeah, there was a lot of good brought through it. Right. It 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 allowed a piece of life to unfold in a way, and whether that's good design or bad design, it will be produced. Right. These th- humankind loves to make stuff. Yeah. And the better we make it, I think the better off we will be and the more responsible and accountable we are as designers, the better. That's a, a beautiful uh, statement for that uh, uh, end of that question. Um, Dan, I'll, I want to just maybe get to the end here and wrap it up. Um, we always like to ask kind of one last question uh, for every interviewee, and that is, what are you excited about for the future in design, in life? Um, you know, what are the things that you are, you know, building towards and excited for? That's a great question. Cause we got to We got to end it on a happy note from the, uh, yeah, I was gonna, so I'm going to, I'm going to go from that happy question to an <laughs> unhappy answer back to a happy answer. Okay, let's that? Hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always thought, even when I was a little kid and, you know, when I first saw when I was very young, 2001, A Space Odyssey, I, I've, I've, in my mind's eye, I have always thought that the future was going to be, be better and better and better. And I was thinking that someday there will be a utopia. Right. Man, after you live a life of designing a lot of stuff and seeing how screwed up this planet is, I don't feel that way anymore. We're heading more toward a dystopic state. Mm. Let's face it. We okay. are. Hopefully technology will save it. Hopefully we wake up. I'm not saying us wake up. That's the problem. I guess I always thought that like good design, and I mean that in the most general sense, like, you know, somebody asked me what design was in front of a television camera, and I kind of froze because it's kind of like asking somebody like, what is life? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Design to me is a big thing. It's, it's, means creativity to me it means creating plans for some kind of betterment whether it's an individual thing you're working on or a system or rethinking the nature of a company design is just a big word to me i always thought that design would help us get to this utopic state but i sometimes feel like sisyphus i'm always pushing that rock up i'm like okay we did our little part yeah as steve jobs said you know you got to make a dent yeah. in this planet I kind of feel like we do. And then I'll see the dumbest thing come out on the market or a client will 
sometimes on purpose do something to something we design where it's like, come on. Yeah. yeah you know, tough. that can be frustrating. Nonetheless. Now let's come back up the hill. Okay. <laughs> I, I do... I'm a little bit afraid of AI, but there's so much potential in it. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of potential in the hardware and software that will allow it to really work well. That's, that's quantum computing, especially. We're, we are working on a quantum computer right now that's going to wow. be quite stunning. Okay. Um, I think I can show it. it. It might be six or months or a year before I can show it, okay. but it's very cool. It's coming. The amount of information that we are going to be able to process through that and the amount of hopefully corrective AI, not just, uh, and, and what I mean by that is almost like you think of, there's going to be malware for AI. Mm -hmm. We will be able to correct a lot of the stupid things that AI is going to do. Yeah, AI will try to crash planes and right. take the grid down. And yes, it's going to be a lot of bad it's, people behind AIs too. And AI it's like too. every new technology, whether it's fire or you yes. know, nuclear, it's like there are going to be bad parts of it but hopefully the good outweighs the bad so I, I i hope that technology will help to write humanity in yeah. some ways i don't rely on it i don't think it i think i don't think it's going to be the the ultimate lifting affordance uh, one of the keys of course is education i'm really not seeing our educational system evolve to the point i think it needs like a a quantum shift. We need a, we need a new way of learning things. Mm. We probably have to abandon some of the ways that we feel about education. We have to abandon or severely shift our description of what it means to be prosperous. The, this capitalist notion of prosperity meaning pretty much only gain more income absolutely must be refocused in providing outcome for humans. Yeah. Outcome and more meaningful products, ideas, software, hardware, so that people can get on with their lives and have a quality life. We've got to fix this planet. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of action there. Okay. I'm not. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Um, I do believe in human ingenuity. Yeah. Um, I don't always believe in... No, that's not true. I was going to say I don't believe in human <laughs> intelligence. That would be crazy. It's amazing how brilliant human beings yeah, yeah. are. And I'm hoping that the more artful side of our humanity exposes itself and begins to make some of the important decisions that will drive a more positive future. Yeah. In other words, the the soul and character of artists, craftspeople, writers, poets. And designers. And designers, yeah. of course, put us right in there. That sensitivity toward making a good life or, or understanding like how to how to really connect with people needs to elevate. Yeah. It needs to influence more about the bigger decisions made in, in our on our planet. So yeah, I guess I'm uh, carefully optimistic okay. yeah, that's i think that's that's your because realism if, if i was all rosy i'd be lying to you and that's the um, george nelson coming in and giving you a little bit of a perspective you know i thought what a cranky old man so i don't want to become that and i'm not i'm super like on all these projects i work on i am i am mr optimism i will 
I think that's what it's going to take every individual to say we can do better. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's some kind of ultimately some kind of, um, I, I don't know, just more of a, a collective consciousness that we can all agree on. Yeah. That's, that's maybe the hardest part is agreeing on a way forward. Um, well, Dan, it was a, it was amazing talking to you and I know our listeners just gained a ton of knowledge and, um, appreciate the time that you've spent sharing all your stories. Um, yeah, it, it, I'm almost speechless. I mean, you you've had an amazing career and I, again, appreciate, you know, all the, the insights you've shared. So, um, I think maybe just to end it, I think we definitely want to, you know, shout out Whipsaw, amazing design team there and amazing work coming out. Um, and also you have your own podcast, so make sure you all go and, and check that out, subscribe to that. And yeah, I don't know if you have any last words, Dan, but, uh, I'll hand it over to you and, that was a lot of words. I don't know. Okay. Last You're good. <laughs> I don't um, like last words. I like the first words and the words in the middle. That that's, that's where all the good stuff is, right? Um, um, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I must say you you did a great job. Oh, and, thanks. Uh, this was a pleasure for me to do. So it's, it's my honor to do it. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, and as always, I'm Nick. Later. I'm, I'm Dan. Later. Thank you for joining.